0: this is episode number 99 which means next week next monday is episode number 100 as i told you my goal is to sit back enjoy relax and to celebrate all of you guys in order to do that though i need your help please visit our website, restaurantstrategypodcast.com. Click the blue button in the upper right corner. That's gonna take you to a page where you can go and record a message right there on your computer. It can be five seconds or as long as five minutes. But I want you to tell me one way that this show has helped you in your business. Just something you learned, some insight, some breakthrough, anything at all. We are a community of chefs, managers, marketers, and operators, and we can help each other. The 100th episode is just a week away, so please help me celebrate you guys. Again, restaurantstrategypodcast.com. You can click the link, of course. It is in the show notes. And don't go anywhere because today I'm interviewing Otto Cedeno and Misha Majid, uh, the owners of Otto's Tacos and Mighty Quinn's, talking all about this really unique collaboration that has come out of the pandemic. Don't go anywhere. There's an old saying goes something like this you'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close, and this is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. Each week, we discuss the tools, tactics, and strategies that will establish you as a leader in your market. I want to help you do more covers and drive more revenue. Now, if you've been following along for a while, you know that I go back and forth from week to week. Mostly, I do this monologue-style format, but every so often, I do uh, I do an interview. Uh, and I've promised to start the year off with four great interviews. Today is the last of those four interviews and it's a great one. But before we get to that conversation, I want to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by Bento Box. So, what is Bento Box? It is a website, e-commerce and marketing platform specifically designed for restaurants. In fact, Mighty Quinn's, one of the brands that we're talking about on today's show, is on Bento Box. They use it. In fact, over 6,000 restaurants worldwide use Bento They rely on them to drive high margin revenue and connect with guests directly through their websites, including those of Jose Andres Think Food Group and also Danny Meyers Union Square Hospitality Group. So Bento Box provides restaurants with powerful tools like uh, direct online ordering and the ability to sell gift cards, merchandise, tickets and more. To further support the restaurant community during COVID-19, restaurant strategy listeners are going to get 50% off their setup fee when they sign up by March 29th. Get started today by visiting getbento.com slash restaurant strategy. That's getbent dot com slash restaurant strategy. So... My guests on today's show are Misha Majid and Otto Cedeno. Misha is the co-founder of Mighty Quinn's Barbecue. Otto is the founder of Otto's Tacos. Two staples here in New York City, certainly the uh, the East Village. I'm thrilled to be having this conversation today. Guys, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. So our industry is so difficult. Um, I, we talk about it all the time. This is certainly uh, not a surprise to, to any of us. Um, But there is a relationship between competition and collaboration. Uh, That's one of the things that we're going to talk about today and kind of how that grew over the course of uh, of the life of of your brands. Um, Certainly, you're both familiar with that. Uh, The main topic we're going to discuss today actually is how these two brands are now working together. uh, and That stemmed from the pandemic. You guys are working together to get through the pandemic. We will get to that. Uh, but really, I'd like to start, I'd like to go back a little bit uh, and give the listeners a little context. Uh, I'll start with Misha. Misha, can you give us uh, a little background? How did you get started in the restaurant industry? What is Mighty Quinn's all about? And um, and if you can, just tell us a little bit of the story of its uh, of its origin and its growth over the last several years.
2: Uh, sure. So my background is actually in uh, in the finance industry. Uh, at a school, I went to uh, go work uh, for Chase and their mergers and acquisitions group. And then following that, went on to the hedge fund, hedge fund industry. And in 2011, um, my stepbrother Hugh Mangum uh, started smoking barbecue at these outdoor food markets in Brooklyn and, you know, developed a pretty quick following at the time. It was really challenging to find like great authentic barbecue um, in the city. And he was doing it on the weekend. So because it was a kind of a limited format, you know, lines were long and, and people came out in droves to check it out. And the second year, you know, it, was, it, it, it continued to catch on, and um, I went out to, to see the operation with my brother-in-law, Christos Gormos, who's you know, our third co-founder, and you know, we just kind of thought that we could do something more with the idea of bringing legit, authentic barbecue to the city. So, you know, off of that market, the three of us decided to go find a brick-and-mortar location. Um, To try to turn what was, you know, a a two-day-a-week seasonal operation into, you know, a brick-and-mortar restaurant, you know, seven days a week with an expanded menu. So, you know, it was really tough at the time, you know, competing against Starbucks and, and, you know, banks for, you know, prime corner spots. But we ended up getting lucky in the East Village. We found a corner spot on uh, East 6th Street and 2nd Avenue that could accommodate, you know, the wood-burning pit that we wanted. So we opened up um, and, you know, the, the neighborhood knew us from, from Brooklyn and we had, we were doing okay numbers. This is December of 2012. And then in March of 2013, we got this glowing review on the cover of the New York times dining section, you know, two and a half star review from Pete Wells, put us on the map in a huge way, you know, at the time. And I think still we're, we're probably the only barbecue place in the city with, with a rating from the times, um, at that level. And, you know, we're serving food on, you know, paper plates and, you know, this is fast casual. This is not fine dining. So to get that accolade um, was really something special. And, you know, the next day kind of the world changed for us. Lines down the block, you know, we're selling out of food at 8 o'clock, you know, daily. I mean, it was, you couldn't see the floor in the place. And I think it was, you know, at that moment we realized that, you know, all it took was a little bit of a, of a tailwind for people to discover us. And, um, you know, we thought this brand ha- had tremendous growth potential. And it was really off the back of that amazing kind of organic press that we just kind of continued to expand. You know, that year we were named um, top 10 new restaurants in New York, um, actually number one in the, in the Zagat book. Um, so, you know, we, we, we garnered national press from what was, you know, a two day a week smoking operation. And it uh, really just validated our thought that, you know, you couldn't find great barbecue and now you had a place uh, to come enjoy, you know, in, in a format that at the time was somewhat new but, but definitely gaining share, you know, the fast casual format. You can come and hang out for an hour over beers or you can come grab your food in five minutes and get out of there. Um, so I think allowing that flexibility and really accommodating how customers wanted to enjoy the experience, um, I think that, that really helped us um, in our growth curve as well.
0: Yeah, and what, um, so when you say authentic uh, barbecue, what are you talking about? What didn't exist that you guys uh, are providing? Sure, yeah,
2: I mean, there were there were restaurants, and there are restaurants that are called barbecue restaurants that are not actually smoking meat. Um, you know, they'll be, you know, roasting off proteins and covering them with sauce, um, or maybe using, you know, some pellet-fired um, flavor additive uh, to get that kind of, that smoky flavor, um, you know, versus you know, having an eight pound brisket, you know, over oak and cherry wood for 20 hours, right? It's, it's, a, yeah. it's a unique cooking process. So when I say authentic, I mean kind of the way when you go down south and you see kind of those open pit rooms with, you know, fires going and, and whole cuts of meat going on and off the pit. That's what
0: we were trying to replicate in the city. Right. Awesome. Uh, and now let me switch gears and uh, and toss the same question to you, Otto. How did you get interested? Uh, how did you get involved with the restaurant industry? And then talk about the gestation of Otto's Tacos. What is it? Explain, you know, what it what it was from the beginning and and how that brand grew.
1: Yeah, no, and it's funny. Genesis stories kind of either are very different or very similar. In this case, they're very similar. Where I went to NYU Film School, and when I moved from California to New York. As a you know, bright-eyed eighteen-year-old, the first thing I noticed was like, "Hey, New York's awesome." The second thing I noticed is like, "Hey, where's the Mexican food? What gives?" And um, it didn't really exist at the time, or where existed, but it was not as authentic as what I grew up with eating in Orange County, in Los Angeles, in San Diego, and uh, it the idea kind of started there. I had no idea it was an idea for a business. I just it was an, simply an observation. Many years pass. You know, I've been working in. Um, you know, the tech and production scene uh, in New York, and I moved back to LA. And so I get some more exposure back to the foods I grew up with, Um, you know, all these little mom and pops, brick and mortar Mexican restaurants, uh, up and down the LA coast. And I'm like, yeah, this is really what was missing in New York. And I kind of started putting together the pieces of the puzzle thinking like, if, if we really wanted to bring this to New York, we could try to sort of bring these authentic you know, handmade tortillas, really succulent meats, um, really simple, no frills, meat, cilantro, onion, salsa, you know, slam as many of these tacos as you can kind of style to New York, I I bet it would do really well. So, you know, one thing led to another, it was a crazy idea that turned into sketches on a, you know, literally in a notebook. Then from that into talking to some investment partners and restaurant friends, uh, then to finding an amazing uh, chef and partner, Joseph Lo who, um, has been with us since day one and has now moved on to open amazing new other new concepts in New York city. Um, you know, he's from orange County, so he totally grew up and got that vision in terms of like, Hey, this is amazing. We get, we take this for granted here, you know, and in New Yorkers, if you talk to a lot of New Yorkers, especially, uh, expats, you know, people from LA, Misha can totally back me up on this. You know, there was uh, for, for many years there was just like, yeah, no, New York's great, but like it's kind of missing a few things like, you know, Mexican food being one of them. Um, and then I started seeing a trend of other sort of QSRs uh, opening Mexican restaurants. So then I knew the idea was ripe. I was like, hey, it's not just me being crazy. Some, you know, some other brands are starting to tackle this. And, you know, with solid branding, messaging, really good food uh, made from solid ingredients. And I said, OK, this the, the time is now if we're going to do it, it's now or never. And so we we put together a team. Um, We assembled and then I moved back to New York to look for real estate, you know thinking it'd be a quick process with such a hot idea. Um, It took about a year for us to find our first location, not out of pickiness on our side, but out of pretty much every landlord telling us no, like reading our prospectus and our business plan saying, who are you guys? Who are you? You open restaurants? And I had to sort of humbly say, no, I've never worked a day in a restaurant in my life, but trust me. Um, that only took me so far. Um, and then literally about a year later, we found, um, you know, an amazing landlord that had a, you know, he had a tenant that was sort of on his, on their way out, saw us, met with me, said, Hey, what the heck, let's give him a shot. And, uh, to this day, we're very thankful for that opportunity that gave us our first location in the East village, actually serendipitously about two blocks North of East uh, of Misha's uh, first mighty Quinn's location. And that's kind of how we sort of got in contact and met, um, and so we've been selling our tacos there um, since the beginning, end of tw- 2012, beginning of 2013, technically. Um, and, you know, again, similar story to, me, uh, to, to, to Mighty Quinn's, very welcomed by the community. I think everyone thought of us as, a, you know, a breath of fresh air in that neighborhood. We were pressing all the tortillas by hand every single day, which was maniacal, um, but we did it for <laughs> a very long time. And um, garner some very, very nice recognition from some very, you know, well-respected food critics, um, which I'm still very humbled by today. You know, seeing as I've never, again, never worked in a restaurant before in my life, just had a really strong passion that this problem needed to be addressed. And, um, you know, the rest is history, as they say. We started expanding into other neighborhoods in Manhattan and then started expanding into other revenue verticals like catering and, um, yeah, it's been a fun ride.
0: Yeah, so, so this is so interesting. I, I find that um, I, I'm often surprised by how many people uh, I, I speak with uh, that just kind of landed in this. I mean, you know, Misha, you, you came from uh, from finance. That was kind of, you know, you took the back door to get into restaurants. And and Otto, I'm still trying to wrap my head around. I mean, certainly there are a lot of uh, artists who, you know, who come to the city uh, pursuing one thing and then go into the other. I, I'm, I'm the same way. Um, but I didn't go from doing one thing to then opening a restaurant. So, what made you, what made you think you could do it or believe you could do it? You know, where did that come from? How, where did that stem from? Honestly, I, I say jokingly all the time. It's the
1: best worst idea I've ever had because it worked. Um, it was, <laughs> but it was it was it was a, it was a struggle, and it was. Um, it's funny you say that because I think what. Some people might see that as like, oh, you've never done this before. This is going to hurt you. Actually, it, it provided very interesting horse blinders for me to know like, hey, what can you and what can't you do? So I knew like the entire thesis was like, hey, Mexican food should be elevated in New York City. Great. Okay, let's start there. What kind of Mexican restaurant? Are we talking full scale fine dining? Are we talking Mexican taqueria mom and pop? Are we talking, you know, fast casual sit down with the full bar? And so I kind of started the most simple version of that. I was like, hey, okay, not fine dining. Obviously, That's, that sounds complicated. It sounds like a lot of overhead. Let's scope down the, the you know, let's, let's address the issue, but let's scope it down to solve it with like the least possible resources so that there's room for error, so that there's room for trials and, and, and seeing what works and what doesn't. By the way, opening day, there's a lot of things that didn't work. So, yeah. um, but we evolved. We evolved on the daily, on the monthly, on the weekly. And, you know, I would say by like, month seven or eight, give or take, we felt like we hit a stride and we we're like, okay, this makes sense to us. Um, we've gone through a lot of painful nights, but you know, we're starting to see the horizon of just you know, something that can be uh, replicatable.
0: Uh, yeah for sure yeah, yeah for sure. I, I wonder uh, Misha if you can speak to this because uh, I find it so refreshing when people come uh, from outside of the industry. Uh, I've been in the industry for so long and there are you know there's the way we do things and then we don't do things that way. And sometimes it is that breath of fresh air when somebody comes in and doesn't know all the quote unquote rules and can just say, well, well, this is what I think we should do, you know, kind of bring a new perspective and see things differently. Did you, did you find that was the case for you when, when you came to the to the industry?
2: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. You know, if you look at, you know, other ground-breaking companies that have really changed their sectors, like an obvious example is Uber, right? I mean, they had to break a couple windows before they became legitimized. And, yeah. and for us coming into the restaurant industry, you know, we we kind of knew the path that we wanted to uh, take the brand down in terms of like, you know, how we're serving this food. Um, And also like, as we expanded, like they don't have to look all the same, you know, we don't have to follow this, you know, this carbon copy expansion plan that, you know, prior restaurant brands have followed with like similar size footprints and similar neighborhoods. So we were very kind of amorphous into like whatever the opportunity was. So whether that's, you know, a 600 square foot, restaurant in a dining hall down on Wall Street or, you know, 3,000 square foot, more traditional uh, layout in Clifton, New Jersey, like we were able to adapt um, as we saw opportunities and we didn't feel like we were um, losing anything in in regards to the the brand's strength. Um, we thought if anything, it was making it stronger because we were showing that it could, you know, we can adopt and thrive in new environments. And as we rolled out our franchise business, um, I think that was another, you know, you know, breaking the glass. There's not. There's really very few fast casual barbecue brands that are available to franchise. So we saw this huge white space, and you know, we knew we acknowledged it was, it was definitely a different business than you know running corporate locations. But we had kind of done a couple of test drives with some international locations and knew that we could teach our, our teach our formula. Like what we could do was, you know, as Otto said, was it was replicable. But the way our systems were set up, we could also um, bring in other owner operators to expand into other regions faster. And I think when franchisees kind of evaluate our, you know, mighty as an opportunity, they, they see that, right. There's very few, maybe one or two that are offering, um, you know, a, a, the, the cuisine type, you know, I wouldn't say they're kind of on, on par with, you know, our more chef driven, uh, menu. Um, but, but just by virtue of doing something different, um, huge opportunities have been created. So, we saw that when we started, you know, smoking meat in the village for you know twenty hours a day, and also as we expanded the brand into real estate that, that didn't necessarily look like each other, and then business model, you know, franchise versus corporate that also didn't look like each other.
0: So then let's talk about, you know, I started off this whole episode by talking about that there that there's this relationship uh, between competition and collaboration. Uh, this is a marketing podcast. Uh, so much of what. Um, you know of what we end up talking about is you know how to separate yourself how to separate your brand uh from the competitors to stand out and not that you're i mean you're vying for the same you know limited amount of dollars right there are only so many people in an area and they get hungry at at certain times during the day and you're trying to get them to spend uh their money with you uh, as opposed to the place across the street um but there is a relationship uh you know here you know again uh, between competition and collaboration and, and talk to me a little bit about uh, how you guys uh, how you guys met uh, Otto how did you first meet Misha and and and, and how did that relationship grow yeah if, I think if memory serves me correctly
1: we met at a community board meeting very quickly I think there was a mutual friend that introduced us over email and kind of like most most tours and operators in New York City when you kind of meet face to face you see the pain in everyone's eyes <laughs> in terms of how, how hard this is so there's an instant you know level of respect and just wanting to trade war stories and asking questions because um you know especially us you know new kids on the block we 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 asked a lot of questions all the time we, we we're so interested in learning from other people's processes and and getting to know on each other but and yeah and you said it i think there's an interesting balance in, in the food world of you know collaboration uh, versus competition, it's kind of like thinking about how a dish is composed. Um, obviously, there's only so many things you can combine that complement each other, and I think that's how neighborhoods are starting to kind of feel, and how operators should really look at neighborhoods. Like, you know, we we're ecstatic if we were thinking about expanding into a brick and mortar area, and if a Mighty Queens is there, we're like, great. We only know that people can eat tacos so many days of the week and barbecue's there to fill in the gap. So it's kind of like this thing where all boats rise. Um, and a lot of people sometimes have a adverse reaction to that. Um, but I, I dig that. I, I dig little neighborhoods that have tons of different QSR options that allow us all to maybe not collaborate directly, but at least connect, collaborate in a community where we create an ecosystem and a destination for people to grab really amazing fast switch uh, food.
0: Yeah. And Misha, was there... Uh... Would you agree with that? Was there like a lot of war stories being traded? I mean, did you guys share, you know, tips and and tactics and, you know, what you were doing that was working and what you, what you were doing that wasn't working and, and all of that?
2: Yeah, definitely. Especially being in the East Village at the time, there was never really, you know, a dull week, you know, from, you know, the explosion that happened several years ago um, on, on 7th and 2nd to, uh, you know, economic cycles up and down. There, there's a, and then and then the the neighborhood just kind of filling in with more national brands. And when when Otto and I opened, it was very much kind of you know high. There was there was definitely fine dining in the village and and all across the spectrum of cuisine types. But now you're seeing the national brands come in, like you know there's you know Pret Manger and Sweetgreen and and Shake Shack are, are are there and they they weren't before. So I think like as neighborhoods build up, they they definitely evolve and and look some in the, in the uh, neighborhoods may feel like. That that gentrification process, maybe you lose some of the character of the of the village when that happens. And that, that's probably true. Um, but they're like, you know, each region of the city is like a living and breathing thing that that grows and dies and changes. And I think in the East Village, we've seen it evolve, you know, very quickly upward. And then COVID has now kind of brought it back downward with a lot of closing and and storefronts that have been boarded up. Um, you know, we've been fortunate to remain open. Um, and so, you know, what we're seeing now is very different than it was two years ago with, you know, less competition. And, you know, we wanted to stay open to serve that neighborhood and keep our staff employed. Um, but again, another evolution, right? And then what happens a year from now, I'm sure it will look much different than, than it does today. So having kind of local, you know, restaurateurs, you know, at phone calls notice, sure, that, that's an amazing resource to have. And I think that um, as neighborhoods grow, they still stay small. Um, And and having those relationships is super important.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, one of the things that strikes me now, we're, I don't know what, 20 minutes into this conversation, and uh, you guys were uh, total novices uh, before you came to the industry. Uh, But the thing that you guys both share in your story, and I wanted to make sure to highlight this for the listeners, is that you were both solving a problem, that you felt you were solving Uh, something that didn't you know providing something that didn't exist right there was no uh, you couldn't find uh, authentic uh, barbecue uh, and so you wanted to to provide that experience uh, for New Yorkers. Uh, Likewise Otto you were saying a similar thing there was no you know not enough authentic Mexican and so you know the answer to that was uh, to to open up a, a taqueria and uh, so often, uh, it's something I talk about here on this show. It's that like, like, why does your place need to exist? And it doesn't have to be that you're, you know, you know, you're saving the world or curing cancer. Uh, it can be something as simple as I don't think uh, New Yorkers have been introduced to authentic, uh, authentic tacos like I grew up with in uh, in Southern California, and I think it's a really profound. Uh, observation. I just want to make sure that the listeners are are understanding that, like that was, I think, instrumental to your success is that you were able to come in and say, "I don't know this, this, and this and this about the restaurant industry, but I do know this area doesn't know tacos the way that that I knew them, or this area doesn't have uh, doesn't have barbecue." I mean, do you, do you think that? I mean, I, that's the common thread I see. Would you Would you guys agree with that, Otto? One
1: hundred percent. You know, after seven years, I'd like to think I know a few things, especially from the. Uh, the path that I've come from, so I've been able to mentor some people who have come to me with you know different food ideas, brick and mortar, you know uh, CPG type things. And you know I kind of analyze it the way you have in terms of like, hey, why does this need to exist? Are you solving a problem? Are you just trying to open up a sandwich place just because you want to open a sandwich place in an area that already has sandwiches? It kind of it doesn't make sense. I get the passion and the need, but like you know at the end of the day, it has to be a scalable business for everyone's sanity, including yourself. So I couldn't agree more with that.
0: Yeah, it's funny. A couple of, I guess a month or two back, I interviewed Robert Maynard, who uh, is based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, He's one of the founders of uh, Famous Toastery, which is now a brand that has expanded all over the Carolinas. They're now franchising. And famously, he came from real estate and finance. And, you know, and he didn't know uh, that industry. And he kind of had that same thing. He's like, Uh, he's like you gotta be solving a problem he's like this uh this industry he's like I come from an industry you know finance uh that lives and dies by cash flow and it's all you know P&L profit and loss and uh this restaurant industry is also ruled by P&L but it's uh passion and loss he's like and there's not enough profit and, uh, and I think uh I think it's okay uh to treat uh to treat profit as not a dirty word. I
2: I, I agree with that sentiment. I and mean, I'll give I'll give Otto more credit for jumping in, you know, and learning everything from scratch. You know, I had the benefit. You know, my partner Chris has been in the restaurant business his whole life, so you know, having him as a resource as we opened up and expanded was you know insurmountable. I, I don't think that we would have been able to you know go from from one store to ten, you know, without someone with you know deep operational experience on board. So. You know, our, our paths are a little bit different in, in that regard.
0: Um, Misha, tell me what was the what was the biggest thing you learned? Let's say in that first year, you know, coming into the restaurant industry. You're now an operator. What was the what was the biggest lesson? Uh,
2: you know, I think that one of the bigger lessons is that you know tomorrow is definitely not going to look like yesterday. Um, you know, in any consumer-facing industry, I think that the pace of that that growth curve is always surprising. You know, we went from Moving, I think, as an industry from sit-down dining to casual dining to to fast casual, you know fast food has always been there, but we've seen this step down with high quality food, high quality ingredients in the service style, right? And when I say step down, I guess I should say simplified, more accessible. Yep. and then from there, we saw this change in how customers wanted to interact with those with, with, with these restaurant brands, you know coming in to order food, then they were taking it out. And now they don't want to leave their home. So the integration of this whole digital ecosphere was very, very small when we started. We always knew it was going to be growing and become important, but I think the pace of that change was, was definitely a lesson. Fortunately, I think we kind of reacted fairly quickly to it. So we were, we were well on our way to having you know, very healthy delivery volumes um, and our digital channels were set up, you know, thankfully in time, you know, prior to this, this whole COVID experience. But I think the pace of change and what people may view as some, somewhat of a very old industry, like obviously there's, there's been restaurants and places to go out to eat forever, right? This is not like a new novel, uh, novel service that's being provided to the world. But the, when you kind of peel back the layers, you'll see how much is actually changing within and the ability or the need to adapt so quickly to all these forces is so crucial, I think, to staying um, alive but also successful. Um, yeah. So that that yep. that's been a I think something that people may be surprised about not knowing the restaurant industry.
0: Yeah, I think I think if there's anything that's become obvious certainly this past year is uh is that how crucial it is to um to stay nimble and to be willing to evolve. I mean in the beginning of the pandemic we were calling it the pivot, but really I think it's uh, I think we're going to find that over the next, let's say, 24 months, restaurants are going to have to pivot and pivot again and pivot again and pivot again, uh, and that really is no longer pivoting. It's it's really about an evolution, about you know, uh, changing with the times, listening to your audience, and and delivering the things that they need. Um, Otto, tell me, uh, what was the, the your biggest takeaway from your first year, you know, in business? What was the the thing that you learned uh, real quick? I
1: think one of the most important things we learned in year one was how powerful the catering vertical can be if your product can be served in bulk uh was not in the original business plan we just wanted to sell tacos um you know to an individual in the store obviously delivery was going to be a huge component which it was um you know we learned a lot of things about just assumption versus what happened in front of you Um, another one would be you know hours of operation we assumed that most of the clientele in the east village would want to get <clears throat> you know, our tacos late night. So we stayed up until four in the morning. And as most of the early employees and partners can attribute to that was hell for us. So we were, we were not sleeping because we were there till four in the morning and then we had to close and then we had to be up, right. at, you know, seven, eight in the morning to start prep for the next day. Um, and then we realized by looking at, you know, sales data, like, Hey, actually people are coming here more for lunch than we thought. Um, and our dinner business is great. Let's, let's scale back and get quality of life. Not even for just ourselves, but for our staff, who commute in from a very, you know, uh, not, they're, they don't, they don't live close by the restaurant. So we have to, you know, factor in their, you know, their quality of life to produce, you know, great food in a great environment. So I think, you know, similar to Misha's but just different examples of just like understanding of like, Hey, I'm going to place a bet in terms of what I think is going to happen, but, um, be prepared to, you know, pivot quickly from, you know, micro decisions to macro, um, to help, you know, not only the sanity of yourself, but the team and, yeah. And back to the first point in terms of catering, you know, I think that anytime you can you say yes to an opportunity to increase a revenue stream that may or may not have been part of the plan, and even if it requires some, you know, moving around of equipment or extra equipment, um, it, it might feel like a pain point in the beginning, but you just never really know how much it's really going to unlock and really help the, the business and from like, you know, the, the the other P word, which is the profits.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's this ability to stay nimble, especially for uh, for small restaurants, you know you're not a, a five hundred unit uh, chain. You know you can you can uh, make right turns uh, much more quickly. Okay, so uh, so then all of this, uh, I think is good. It certainly gives me um, uh, gives me a better a sense of the the brands. Uh, how they started, where they came from, and how we got to this point. Now, uh, it's impossible to uh, to not address the pandemic, and actually, uh, that's where your guys' story uh, tangles even more. It's uh, certainly the reason why we're sitting down having this conversation, why I'm so interested uh, in telling this part of the story. Um, tell me about uh, the pandemic, uh, Misha, what happened at the start of the pandemic with Mighty Quinns? and and then I'll kick it to Otto, and I and I want you guys then to talk about um, the collaboration that came about uh, through this.
2: Yeah, so out of the gate, you know, our our goal was to try to figure out like, okay, how do we stay open? How do we keep our team employed? Um, and and what do the next few months look like? So we decided to keep the four residential facing restaurants open. Um, obviously people were not going to be going to work, but they were going to be staying home and they needed a place to eat. Um, so we thought that was the most obvious first decision to make. Um, we had We had to make some layoffs at the company. Um, we, obviously we had an infrastructure in place to support you know much, much larger sales and at a bigger growth plan for 2020. Uh, so we had to scale that back appropriately. And then like a month into it, you know, things kind of got scary when you see all these headlines about, you know, potential infection rates and what that means. So we then decided to start uh, feeding the hospital teams, um, you know, for free. Uh, if, if you came by with your hospital idea, uh, ID, you got a meal on us. Um, and through the spring, um, we were, you know, fortunate enough to be able to give away 6,000
0: meals it's amazing
2: um, to the, the hospital networks that coincidentally were located, you know, near Mighty Quinn's restaurants. Um, both downtown and uptown. Um, so you know, we did that for as long as we could. That lasted through the summer. You know, obviously the world started feeling a little bit more normal. We knew that vaccines were in the works. Um, you know, a lot of our locations remain closed. You know, we have we have uh, restaurants in you know Madison Square Garden and Yankee Stadium, for example. Obviously, those those remained shut to attended events. Um, so you know, our, our path was really you know try to get the remaining restaurants open um, as, as soon as we could. But of course, we're dealing with, as we were talking about, you know, before Chip, that like you know, these office buildings are still very much empty. Um, so it's hard to hard to open and, and do volumes that justify staying open when you know the customer base is still telecommuting in.
0: Yeah, we were talking before the uh, the before we hit record on this episode uh, about some of the other locations that are in you know Midtown, right in the middle of these office buildings. I was saying some of the the brands that I work with uh, are really having a hard time. They they. They stay closed through all spring, all summer. Opened a little bit for the fall, then re, you know closed again. And uh, Misha was saying that uh, Mighty Quinns is is seeing a lot of the, like the similar trends uh, for their brands as well. Just to bring everybody up to speed. Yep.
2: So you know, as as you know, sales did what they did. We we were trying to figure out. Okay, we have we have this team in place. Um, you know, some locations were, were performing great. Some definitely below what they can do from a capacity standpoint. We were trying to figure out ways. To do more with with our infrastructure, um, and that's when the idea and Auto can talk about what was going on with Auto Stockless at the time. You know, we thought it would be great to try to bring on a on a delivery only basis. You know, di- digital presence only bring a, a new uh, cuisine category through the Mighty Quinn's kitchen infrastructure.
0: Yeah, so then I think that's a perfect segue over to to Auto. So talk a little bit about as the pandemic is hitting. You know, what was going on with the the Autos Tacos brand?
1: Yeah, so right when the pandemic hit, um, and the first sort of um, stay at home orders were advised, and you know, a lot of major companies started to send employees to work from home to be safe, which was for sure the right move. You know, the, the, the thing that impacted us instantaneously was our catering vertical. So as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, it's an important pivot to a lot of other companies and brands, it was massive for us. Um, and so we saw that, you know, at its healthy, normal numbers, and then all of a sudden it went to, I mean, almost zero overnight. So as soon as we saw that trend and we didn't see it lift back up, you know, the next day or the next day, we knew we had to do some back of the napkin math to see how we can, you know, adjust for that. Um, and we unfortunately just knew that there was no amount of delivery lift, um, and or cuts we could make, you know, given some of the fixed costs, um, as you know, doing business in Manhattan, is not cheap. Um, So you're, you're already dealing with razor thin margins. And um, once we realized it didn't pencil, um, we decided to try to, um, you know, renegotiate with some landlords, um, you know, pause some of the operations. And ultimately, you know, we came to the unfortunate, faithful decision to shut down, you know, three of the four locations, we kept the Upper East Side operating for a little while. Um, It was actually doing decent uh, business volume. Um, and then, you know, you know, candidly, some of our staff just, you know, raised their hands and said, Hey, we just don't feel safe. Like, we just don't know what's going on. You know, a lot of them lived in multi-generational homes. Um, and there was just not a lot of information at the beginning of the pandemic. And a lot of people were scared and rightfully so. And we just felt as operators, it was our duty to protect them. You know, there's a lot of them on our team that have been with us since day one, um, that have, you know, literally been in the trenches with us. And we just said it wasn't it wasn't fair to them. It wasn't it wasn't worth any of the risk associated. So we decided to shut that location as well and sort of reassess as needed. And um, you know, one thing we haven't talked about was we had started already positioning Autos as a franchisable brand. Um, you know, we had um, signed a deal with uh, you know JetBlue at JFK to do a, a licensing deal there. You know, before the pandemic, which we were really excited about, and we wanted to continue growing the. Um, the uh, autos Tacos um, uh, ecosystem with other operators in other areas that just knew more about those areas, you know, typical franchising planning. One thing that I always wanted to try was, you know, to really explore these, you know, ghost kitchens and digital-only strategies. You know, we thought we had a really cool brand and a great product that photographed very well, so it would lend itself to a real you know, successful run as of, Hey, we don't have a brick and mortar in you know, X, Y, Z cities, but we do have a big presence on these delivery platforms and the food looks amazing and the brand looks legit. So let's give it a shot. So it was something we've been exploring for years and then the pandemic happens. And then, you know, Misha and I, you know, brainstorming a bunch of things. And we start talking about this concept of, you know, Mighty Quinn's doing it for us. And for me, it was a no brainer because it was something we were already kind of on track of, you know, mentally thinking about. And, um, yeah, and it's kind of where we're at now. And, you know, obviously we're insanely grateful for them to, you know, try this with us. And, um,
0: yeah, it's kind of, that's pretty much it. So then let's get into it. Specifically, how is this, co- what is happening with this collaboration? Tell us how it's working between Mighty Quinn's and Otto's.
2: Uh, sure. I mean, just like at the high level, you know, we are, we are, uh, uh, you know, licensing uh, the, the Otto's name to be able to make and fulfill the food out of, out of our kitchen. Um, so we have a very strong, uh, commissary, uh, team that basically does all of the production for, for mighty Quinns and, you know, their ability to get, to take on, you know, auto's top, the auto's tacos menu was, was, was fairly easy, uh, for them. So logistically, uh, we got them kind of set up with, with the auto's menu. Like, you know, we did a little bit of of training with the auto's team just to make sure everything was dialed in correctly. And now it lives, um, you know, for for one location as a uh, as a delivery only uh, digital brand in the, in the Upper East Side.
0: Right. So the brand then, it, and it's and it's only digital only. It's just being executed out of uh, the mighty Quinn's Kitchen on the Upper East Side
2: to start. Yeah, with our our hope that we can then expand that into uh, other locations.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So to start, um, and, and I like I like how you phrase that. That there's you know this is the way it's working now um who knows how it'll work in the future and and maybe there's other growth how do you um how do you envision that or how might that work in the future as it expands
2: uh well from the corporate location standpoint very similar to how it's working now we would just be you know turning on new neighborhoods so all we're we're basically on all of the major third-party delivery platforms including autos and so all that would entail would be uh, setting up those portals to, to offer fulfillment out of new, out of the, you know, the other mighty Quinn's locations. Um, and you know, obviously a brief training of, of the team who are running the kitchens in those, those respective restaurants.
0: Right. And when did this, so when did you guys launch this Otto? when did, when did they start serving the auto's tacos out of mighty Quinn's upper East side?
1: I think we're about eight or nine weeks in, give or take something like that. Um, but you know, we talked about it over the sort of summer end of summer and then we started kind of executing the plan uh sometime in the fall and it was really as easy as just you know agreeing to it you know and getting them the assets and all the support they needed and you know making sure they had all the resources from a recipe and operation standpoint and
0: um yeah and uh it's going well so far
2: yeah i mean i think that you know Otto talked about the simplicity of the the tacos they were making, which is kind of the the star of the menu. And that's what we were gravitating towards. You know, when you're talking about composing something that tastes amazing, that only has four ingredients, that's right up our alley. That's consistent with how we put our menu together as well. Um, So logistically, it's been very smooth. And, you know, we hope that every month we'll see, you know, continued gains on the top line.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then so then the idea is that you would then pick another property and roll it out there, pick another property, roll it out there and and growing it um, kind of incrementally in that way.
2: That's the thought. Yes.
0: Cool. Um, What have you guys learned then about both your businesses through this collaboration um, just over the last couple of months? Yeah,
1: I I'm definitely incredibly. I wouldn't say surprised. I'm insa- I'm insanely thankful. I guess is the word when we kind of reannounced um, this partnership on social media. You know, we have a pretty big following on Instagram, and I was just overwhelmed with messages from our guests who are super excited um, that this was happening. That they were we were coming back. Um, I think that's been the biggest takeaway is that we really missed them and they really missed us. So we're just so thankful to have an opportunity right now for one neighborhood to start, as Misha said. Um, to deliver our, you know, our tacos, and we just really hope to kind of keep expanding into the other areas that we used to be in, so that um, the rest of the Autos Tacos community can get their taco fix.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, and what was uh, what was a challenge that was like unforeseen before you did this, or did you kind of circle the issue so much that you kind of had it all covered? Was there anything that surprised you?
2: Um, no, I mean, our, our main goal was, you know, we're still in. Somewhat defense mode, so we we didn't want to put ourselves in a position where we had to spend capital, um, and we also wanted to be as have as variable an infrastructure or a variable as variable cost of an infrastructure as we as we could, and, and I'm speaking mainly to labor. So at first we didn't know how much additional labor we would need to bring on to execute this, um, so we started with kind of a separate team, but. Just through the ease of the operation, we've been able to, you know, utilize our existing staff um, to fulfill both you know, the Mighty Quinn's menu as well as the Autos Tacos menu, which has been great. And I attribute that to our team. I mean, we have a, a director of ops who's, you know, in the in the weeds figuring out the most efficient ways to do things, and an executive chef in the commissary who's making things very easy for the kitchen.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, can you guys look ahead into the future? You know, uh, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Luckily, as we're as we're recording this, um, that the the vaccine is now being distributed. That looks like, you know, as we get into the spring and summer, um, a bunch of you know a bunch more people, a majority of the population, is hopefully going to be vaccinated. Um, is there a plan to bring Otto's Tacos back uh, as a brick and mortar? location, or do you think this is where it's going to exist uh, for the foreseeable future?
1: It's a great question. You know, I think that all possibilities are, well, possible. For now, I think the digital-only strategy really excites us. It allows us to do one thing really well. Um, That's always been the war cry with this business. You know, back to the original conversation that we've been having in terms of why, what inspired me to start this business, how I tackled it as a as a sort of newbie in the industry, and it was always like, hey, let's just focus on one thing and do it the best we can, and then let's add a layer of complexity. So I kind of go back to the the basics with this problem and say, hey, let's, we have a really good thing here, we think, let's focus on that and see how we can grow that with the Mighty Quinn's family and, you know, take it one step at a time. But certainly, I think we're open to any type of growth plan that, you know, is going to give the brand um, and the community. Um, you know, success story
0: here. Yeah. And just a few minutes ago, you said that, you know, so Misha had mentioned early on in the interview that they had started pursuing franchise opportunities. They have done that. There are now, uh, you know, other um, non-corporate locations. And you said you guys were starting to explore that option. Is that still on the table as well? Or are you really just looking you know, keeping with the licensing and uh, and this digital only idea.
1: Yeah, again, certainly we think that once things settle and we kind of get a, a glimpse of like where the new world's going to be post pandemic, uh, certainly all things are on the table in terms of growing autos tacos. Ultimately, the vision was initially like, hey, how can we help bring really quality, you know, authentic Mexican food to the streets of New York? And then, you know, in that journey, we've identified so many other neighborhoods where I'm like, hey, we we feel like Mexican food is underrepresented here but we're not experts of operations in you know, XYZ city. There's gonna be certainly better operators there. So the franchising model is still very attractive to us to be able to team up with you know, superb operators to bring you know, our menu to their local community and make sure it's executed in the best way possible.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and Misha, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to put you on the spot. You know, as you guys have been exploring these franchise opportunities, um, is this something that you've considered, uh, the idea that somebody might franchise uh, a Mighty Quinn's as well as an Otto's Tacos to be executed out of that same kitchen, much in the way that you guys are doing now on the Upper East Side?
2: You know, that's a great question. And kind of going back to what I was saying about kind of being able to adapt, like, you know, don't don't chisel the, uh, the rule book out of stone, right? You have to be able to, to acknowledge when there's opportunities that don't really fit the conventional way of franchising. And I think not that, not that we're working on this now, but I think definitely down the line that if we feel, you know, that, that an operator, um, is, is able to take on, autos uh, tacos for an additional revenue stream and, and, and you know, execute both, to our standards then yeah it could definitely be on the table in the future
0: that's one of the things that really strikes me about the pandemic right again we, we talk about the pivot um but the the thing that um i think has become most obvious is the need for um diversity of revenue streams uh, certainly any restaurant that was just a sit-down restaurant you know died or they had to add revenue streams quickly whether that was uh you know delivery or at-home meal kits or you know on and on and on whatever it was but uh, the same is true i think uh, with what you guys are are both building what you've been building uh, is that you know diversity of revenue streams is not a is not a bad thing i think it's why ghost kitchens uh, really you know rose to fame over the last five years is that the idea being that like okay people don't want chinese food every night people don't want pizza every night but They're going to order out two or three times a week. And so if we can execute everything out of this one kitchen, you know, I don't care what they order. If they order tacos tonight, barbecue tomorrow, you know, whatever other cuisine that I I think there's a, there's a benefit uh, worth exploring for sure. So tell me and i want to be respectful of your guys time we're just uh, wrapping up on our on our time here any insights any advice that you can give other restaurant owners because the audience here of the show is uh is all just you know chefs managers marketers uh and, and mostly independent operators people who have been you know who've gone through hell over the last 10 months um any any advice that you guys have learned uh through this collaboration uh, that you can pass on uh Otto?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, always approach it with camaraderie first, um, if possible, as opposed to competition. There's so many lessons to be learned from your neighbors in this in this field, um, especially if you're a first time operator, uh, or even, you know, looking to scale from one to two locations. I mean, that for us was always the hardest part of this whole story. Um, actually, that kind of a lie from two to three was the hardest because, you know, Chef Joe and I, when we had one to two one of us could be in one of the locations and and the other one was in the original but once we opened our third one we realized oh goodness we are outnumbered officially (laughs) So, so that was the hardest one so i think you know my biggest advice you know with with anything in general is just you know make sure you have a solid team you know uh on the management level partner level um so that you can scale if that's uh uh, of interest, and then don't forget to look towards your neighbors in terms of collaborations of any kind right now, and be able to say yes to most things as opposed to no. Um, given the way the world is, and you just never know what different sort of ideas can unlock revenues to sort of not only just keep brands and in, 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 you know restaurants afloat, but also expand them and grow them.
0: Yeah, and that starts just with what a conversation, right? Simple as picking up a phone and
1: saying, "Hey, how hard was your day today? Tell me about it."
0: Yeah, I think I hope that's a, a takeaway. Uh, that the listeners um come away with here um just pick up the phone that the collaboration uh, community is a is a real thing certainly you guys know that firsthand that's why i love this story um misha what, what about you any uh, any advice insights uh, what would you pass on to to the listeners
2: yeah there's you know a lot of talk right now about you know the movement to ghost kitchens and the delivery channel all, all of which are valid and very important but that doesn't mean that that's the right solution for every brand and every operator so I think before people make the jump in investing, you know, time and, and resources into, you know, g- ghost kitchens or or figuring out new ghost brands to launch in their own restaurants, they really got to figure out, you know, what is their competitive advantage. Well, you know, why are they different than you know the guy next door, and then really just kind of lean into where they think they can excel. Don't try to lean into the trend of you know simply doing a, a ghost kitchen or a new brand for, for the sake of doing it. Um, I don't think it's going to work. But I think, like when you kind of look through the end of this year, there's going to be a lot of these brands popping up. And I think that you know, not all of them are going to last. And just like everything, there'll be there'll be a, you know peaks and valleys to this cycle. So I think that people kind of go into this um, with the with the right weapons and and the right strategy will do well. But but don't try to do it just because that seems to be the trend.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think good advice. Um, guys, I'm going to let you go. Uh, before I do, uh, Otto, tell, uh, tell everybody where they can learn more about Otto's Tacos and, and you and your story.
1: Sure. So um, our biggest social channel is Instagram, at Otto's Tacos. Um, you can find more information about the brand, too, on autostacos.com Tacos.com. And also order direct um, on the website to the Upper East Side location to get our amazing tacos served by uh, Misha and the Mighty Quinn's uh, amazing staff. And hopefully more
2: locations uh, in this collaboration soon.
0: Excellent. And Misha, where can people uh, go to learn more about Mighty Quinn's?
2: Sure. I mean, our website's a great place, MightyQuinsBBQ.com. Uh, similar to Otto's, our Instagram is also probably our most active channel, and that's at MightyQuinsBBQ.
0: Excellent. Guys, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to talk with us, to share your story. Uh, best of luck to, to you guys. Uh, keep fighting the good fight, and I will, uh, I will talk to you soon. Thanks, Chip. Thanks, Chip. Once again, I want to thank Misha and Otto for taking the time to sit with us and and to share their story. I hope you guys got a lot out of that conversation. Um, uh, Clearly, obviously, their stories are really unique, really inspirational. I think there's a lot to take away from it. Uh, I want to remind you of just a couple of things. The 100th episode is coming up. Uh, Go click the link in the show notes. Leave me a message. Just got a few days left before I have to start putting that episode together. Uh, Number two, if you haven't done so yet, please take a few minutes and go leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, All those five-star ratings really do help boost us in the rankings, which makes a big difference, helps us uh, reach new audiences and and, and grow this community. Uh, Finally then, I want to thank all the folks over at Bento Box for their support of the restaurant strategy podcast if you haven't done so yet please go click the link in the show notes again it's getbento.com slash restaurant strategy it is a great product i wouldn't be promoting it on this show unless i believed in it uh, i have worked with it i've used it myself uh, i have clients who use it it is uh, it's really phenomenal very very user friendly uh, it does everything they say it's going to do so please go check them out uh, i appreciate you being here stay safe stay creative and i will see you next time